We turn to Exodus once again, and this time we go to chapter 6, verse 28. The last few verses of chapter 6, and then we're going to read all of chapter 7, and we're going to read also into chapter 8. So we have a, a bit to read this evening, encompassing the first three of the plagues. We begin at chapter 6, verse 28. We hear God's word. And it came to pass on the day when the Lord spake unto Moses in the land of Egypt, that the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, I am the Lord. Speak thou unto Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say unto thee. And Moses said before the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips, and how shall Pharaoh hearken unto me? And the Lord said unto Moses, See, I have made thee a god to Pharaoh, and Aaron thy brother shall be thy prophet. Thou shalt speak all that I command thee, and Aaron thy brother shall speak unto Pharaoh, that he send the children of Israel out of his land. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh shall not hearken unto you, that I may lay my hand upon Egypt and bring forth mine armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, when I stretch forth mine hand upon Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. And Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded them, so did they. And Moses was fourscore years old, and Aaron fourscore and three years old, when they spake unto Pharaoh. And the Lord spake unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, When Pharaoh shall speak unto you, saying, Show a miracle for you, then thou shalt say unto Aaron, Take thy rod and cast it before Pharaoh, and it shall become a serpent. And Moses and Aaron went in unto Pharaoh. And they did so as the Lord had commanded. And Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers, now the, now the magicians of Egypt. They also did in like manner with their enchantments. For they cast down every man his rod, and they became serpents. But Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods and he hardened Pharaoh's heart that he hearkened not unto them as the Lord had said and the Lord said unto Moses Pharaoh's heart is hardened he refuseth to let the people go get thee unto Pharaoh in the morning lo he goeth out unto the water and thou shalt stand by the river's brink against he come and the rod which was turned into a serpent shalt thou take into thine hand and thou shalt say unto him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has sent me unto thee, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. And behold, hitherto thou wouldst not hear. Thus saith the Lord, In this thou shalt know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will smite with the rod that is in my hand upon the waters which are in the river, and they shall be turned to blood. And the fish that is in the river shall die, and the river shall stink, and the Egyptians shall loathe to drink of the water of the river. And the Lord spake unto Moses, Say unto Aaron, Take thy rod, and stretch out thine hand upon the waters of Egypt, upon their streams, upon their rivers, and upon their ponds, and upon all their pools of water, that they may become blood, and that there may be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. And Moses and Aaron did so as the Lord commanded. And he lifted up the rod and smote the waters that were in the river in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of all his servants. And all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood. And the fish that was in the river died, and the river stank. And the Egyptians could not drink of the water of the river. And there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. And the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Neither did he hearken unto them, as the Lord had said. And Pharaoh turned and went into his house. Neither did he set his heart to this also. And all the Egyptians digged round about the river for water to drink, for they could not drink of the water of the river. And seven days were fulfilled, after that the Lord had smitten the river. 
And the Lord spake unto Moses, Go unto Pharaoh, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. And if thou refuse to let them go, behold, I will smite all thy borders with frogs. And the river shall bring forth frogs abundantly, which shall go up and come into thine house, and into thy bedchamber, and upon thy bed, and into the house of thy servants, and upon thy people, and into thine ovens, and into thy kneading troughs. And the frog shall come up both on thee, and upon thy people, and upon all thy servants. And the Lord spake unto Moses, Say unto Aaron, Stretch forth thine hand with the rod over the streams, over the rivers, and over the ponds, and cause frogs to come up upon the land of Egypt. And Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. And the magicians did so with their enchantments and brought up frogs upon the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Entreat the Lord that he may take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go, that they may do sacrifice unto the Lord. And Moses said unto Pharaoh, Glory over me. When shall I entreat for thee and for thy servants and for thy people to destroy the frogs from thee and thy houses? that they may remain in the river only. And he said, Tomorrow. And he said, Be it according to thy word, that thou mayest know that there is none like unto the Lord our God. And the frogs shall depart from thee and from thy houses and from thy servants and from thy people. They shall remain in the river only. And Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh. And Moses cried unto the Lord because of the frogs which he had brought against Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. And the frogs died out of the houses, out of the villages, and out of the fields. And they gathered them together upon heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was respite, he hardened his heart, and hearkened not unto them, as the Lord had said. And the Lord said unto Moses, Say unto Aaron, Stretch out thy rod, and smite the dust of the land, that it may become lice throughout all the land of Egypt. And they did so. For Aaron stretched out his hand with his rod and smote the dust of the earth, and it became lice in man and in beast. All the dust of the land became lice throughout all the land of Egypt. And the magicians did so with their enchantments to bring forth lice, but they could not. So there were lice upon man and upon beast. Then the magicians said unto Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And he hearkened not unto them as the Lord had said. We read that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. We take as our text a few verses from chapter 7. 7 verses 2 through 5, but we'll be looking at the whole context here. Chapter 7 verse 2, Thou shalt speak all that I command thee, and Aaron thy brother shall speak unto Pharaoh, that he send the children of Israel out of his land. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs, and my wonders in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh shall not hearken unto you, that I may lay my hand upon Egypt and bring forth my armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I stretch forth mine hand upon Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. May God bless his word to our hearts. Beloved, and when it comes to the wonder of Exodus, the Bible doesn't give any credit to Moses, doesn't give any credit to Aaron. And we would expect that. This is God's work. And this is a wonder of Jehovah. Jehovah is displaying his power, his glory, his majesty here in this history. And it's striking that we have numerous references in the Bible that emphasize precisely that point. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, confesses in chapter 18, verse 11, Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, for in the things wherein they dealt proudly, he was above them. Isaiah says this in Isaiah 19.1, The burden of Egypt, behold, the Lord rideth upon a swift cloud and shall come into Egypt, and the idols of Egypt shall be moved at his presence, and the heart of Egypt shall melt in the midst of it. Probably most clearly, the victory is set forth in Numbers 33, 
verses 3 and 4. And they departed from Ramses in the first month, on the 15th day of the first month. On the morrow, after the Passover, the children of Israel went out with a high hand in the sight of all the Egyptians. For the Egyptians buried all their firstborn, which the Lord had smitten among them. Upon their gods also the Lord executed judgments. What those passages emphasize is that this was a battle between Jehovah and the idol gods. And Jehovah displays and demonstrates that he alone is God. There is no other God beside Jehovah. God once again sends Moses and Aaron to stand before Pharaoh with that insistence. And God assures them in chapter 6 that all is going to work out. Israel is going to be delivered. God will accomplish that wonder. But God will release them only after ten mighty plagues have taken place. Moses now at this point knows himself to be unqualified, uncapable of this task. He confesses in the last verses we read there in chapter 6 that he's of uncircumcised lips. He's a sinner. He doesn't use his lips. He doesn't use his mouth rightly. But nevertheless, God assures him that God will make use of him and God will release the Israelites. And so Moses and Aaron now do as the Lord commands. And we don't read any more of Moses and Aaron refusing to do or to go to Pharaoh. God gave them his promises. He reiterated them in chapter 6. And now Moses and Aaron, bolstered by that encouragement, faithfully go to Pharaoh. They're 80 years old now and 83. Moses, 80. Aaron, 83 years old. And they now appear to Pharaoh, according to verse 7. God promises he's going to bring about deliverance, but it's going to be in the way of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And so we see that now in this history. Moses and Aaron are confident in God's word and God's promises. And God stands before all the gods of Egypt. And now he will see to their destruction and he will see to their complete overthrow. His people will be rescued. And God will make known his glory in this manner. And so we look at this history, Jehovah overcoming the idol gods. Notice, first of all, those idol gods in Egypt. Secondly, the wonders that God takes place and performs here. And then finally, the victory that is demonstrated. There were over 80 idol gods in Egypt, as best I'm able to figure out. The Egyptians were polytheistic. That is, they had many, many different gods. And those gods especially were around the realm of the sun, the water, and the earth. We find this pretty common among pagan religions, that they would pick their gods, and their gods would be those then that would be associated with those things that they viewed as necessary for their human life. And therefore, they would credit then the gods for giving them water, for giving them fertile soil to grow things, and for giving them the sunshine in which they could flourish. Especially that was the case with the Nile River. The Nile River is associated with at least three different gods. There was one god that saw to its continued flow. There was another god that produced the fish that were in the river. There was another god who was also performing other wonders in the Nile River. So that those three idols were the focus of much of their worship. Later on when Moses and Aaron go to see Pharaoh and they visit him by the riverside, most likely he got up early to go worship those three idol gods down by the riverside. There's known to be one ruler during the 18th dynasty of Egypt, a Pharaoh who was known as Akinahaten, who tried to break Egypt from their polytheism. He tried to insist that they ought to put away some of these gods. And he tried to eradicate that idol worship. But he was not successful. And after he died, they took down even all of the references to him, the monuments that were established, in order to try to eliminate every memory of his reign. These gods of the Egyptians were male, they were female, they were associated with that which provided them with fertility, that which provided them with their food and drink. It is, they characterize all the different aspects of their life in the midst of this world. 
And we can understand from a human perspective the importance of the Nile River especially. If it were not for the Nile in Egypt, Egypt would have been a desert. But the Nile River provided that fertile, not only the water that flowed through, but also the fertile soil. As every spring it would overthrow its banks, and as it overflowed its banks, then it would leave behind fertile soil that would result in excellent crops and growing. That good soil, that plentiful sunshine, that water produced marvelous crops so that Egypt was one of the most productive areas of the world during this time. Now as we go through the plagues, we're going to see how God takes on all of those different gods. Gods of the water, gods of the land, gods of the sunshine. And God sees to it that those idols are no idols. Now you children know that. We had this in catechism this past week. Baal, Elijah stood against Baal. Baal is no idol. Baal couldn't send any fire down from heaven. Baal was merely an imagination of men. And God demonstrated that as Elijah prayed to God and God sent fire down from heaven. Similarly now, this history is Jehovah God declaring that he is God alone. And all of these idols of the Egyptians are nothing. They're make-believe. Men and women make up their own idols that they then place in the place of Jehovah and they worship them. Instead of worshiping God, instead of giving God the credit for fertility and for the crops and for all the blessings they receive, they then make up their idols whom they worship and serve. Jehovah doesn't need any help. He doesn't need 80 gods, idols to help him. Jehovah is God alone. And as one God, he's able to accomplish everything. He's able to uphold the whole of the universe. He's able to provide for each animal and every single creature that exists on the whole face of the planet. In his providence, Jehovah, by his might and by his power, is the one who's directing every single thing that takes place. He controls the water, the sunshine. He controls fertility. He controls everything that's taking place among his children, among the wicked, among the angelic realm, among the demons, the plants, the animals. Everything is in his hand. And he doesn't need help. He's able to do it as God alone. Now there's been a lot of preparation in Moses' life. And Moses understands who this God is. Moses knows the wonder of the greatness of the glory of this God. This God is the I am that I am. He's the only living God. And he's the God who marvelously created all things, sustains all things, and who made covenant promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he would be a God who would be faithful to his people and that he would bring his people into the fullness of glory, heavenly bliss. This God is God alone. And he's in control of everything that's taking place as the unchangeable God. Moses knew this. Aaron knew this. God had revealed himself clearly to them so that with boldness now, they go before Pharaoh in order to testify that Jehovah, he alone, is God. Now God demonstrates this in a number of wonders here, a number of ways. He demonstrated it with the miracle of the rod. Aaron took his shepherd's rod and he threw it on the ground and it turned into a snake. It seemed to not even really phase Pharaoh. Pharaoh calls his Egyptians and his Egyptians take their rods and they throw them down and they turn into snakes so that, in a sense, they intend to mock Moses and Aaron and say, look, we can do this too. Now that's an interesting phenomenon. And we, we note that, that with regard to that wonder and then the first two plagues, God allowed the magicians to do these wonders. And we believe that this wasn't just an illusion. This was a miracle that God allowed the devil to work through these magicians. But God demonstrates his power even in these wonders. What happens with the rods of the Egyptian magicians? Aaron's rod eats them all up and they're gone. And Aaron picks up his, the serpent and it turns back into a rod and God displays right from the beginning, your gods are as nothing. I will devour them. I will destroy them. But again, Pharaoh is hardened. So God then instructs Moses, begin the plagues. And so he goes to meet Pharaoh in the morning 
down by the riverside there. And in that incident, as noted, Pharaoh likely getting up early to go worship the gods of the Nile. Now, Moses and Aaron appear. And they stretch forth their rod, and immediately the water is turned to blood. The entire river of the Nile, with all the ponds, all of the other rivers that flow into it, all the tributaries, everything turned into blood. Now some think that this was just an appearance of blood. It was just an illusion again. And they point to the fact that there were times in the spring when the Nile River would turn a red color because of the various algae that was blooming in the river. This was a wonder. And evidence of that is not only the fact that God himself says it turned to blood, but also the fact that the fish died. The river stunk. God created a wonder here. And God is showing those three gods that you're worshiping, where are they? Look, I just turned the whole river into blood. And they're not doing anything about it. What are the magicians doing? They're jumping around turning more water into blood. Pharaoh might have become furious with them. They needed the water that was left over. And yet again, God gives to them, at this point, that ability yet to do so. God is a jealous God. And God demands that He alone be worshipped. He's the one that provides fertile soil. He's the one that provides the nourishment that's necessary. He's the one to whom we are to look. And now God is demonstrating your gods of the water. Your gods of the Nile are powerless. They can't stand before this wonder. If they were gods and if they were powerful, they would turn the river back into water. They would help you. What good do you do to be praying to these and to be looking to them when for seven days I remain, I keep this water, blood, and there's no turning of it? God will not be mocked. Let my people go, is his repeated refrain. Now Jehovah, as God, called to himself a special people who are his own. And we've looked at that wonder, and we stand in awe of it. That Jehovah God set his love according to his sovereign eternal decree of election on a certain people whom he would save in Jesus Christ. And God references them again and again in this history. These are my people. He uses that possessive language. These are those whom I've chosen from before the foundations of the world. They're the ones upon whom I set my love in time by giving my own son as their savior. And I will preserve them. I will keep them. And I will see too their deliverance. Pharaoh in his pride said, they're mine. I've taken them into captivity. They belong to me. I'm the one that's getting work out of them now, and I will continue to do so. By nature, we don't want to be owned by anyone. The Israelites struggled under the bondage to Pharaoh. But what does God do? God takes hold of a people. He draws them to himself by a wonder of grace, and he works in us an awareness. I am not my own. I belong to my heavenly Father who loved me and who called me and now who governs and directs my life. And God does so in marvelous, mysterious ways, testifying to the fact that it's his hand in every area of our life that we are able to see. We don't look to ourselves. We don't look to the circumstances around us. We acknowledge he is the one directing all things. And just think of the wonder of that. God not only allowed the fall of Adam and Eve to take place in the garden, but he ordained it for a purpose. It would serve the wonder by which he would save to himself a people in the way of sin and grace. God allowed Israel not just to go to e into Egypt. God ordained it, that they would go into Egypt, that Pharaoh now would become possessive of them, and that he would make use of them and work them to death. Egypt takes the people captive. Pharaoh claims them as his own, but God is the one who's directing all of this. Why? So that he can show his power and his glory and so that he can call his people out of Egypt. He will give them the freedom that is theirs in Jesus Christ. 
So that we have the gospel here in Exodus as it's found through the whole of the Old and New Testaments. The gospel that Jehovah God says, I will be your God and you will be my people and I will take you and I will claim you to be my own by a wonder of grace and I will preserve and keep you through the whole course of your life over against the devil, all the wicked rulers that rise up against you, even against your own flesh and I will preserve and bring you to the glory that awaits. And God calls his children. He calls his children out of this world. He calls them out of wicked homes. He calls them out of, away from sometimes sinful parents. He causes them to be delivered from troubles and trials and afflictions in their life. And God accomplishes a wonder. Now we don't know all the details of how that's working out throughout history as God is involved in this perfect work. But all through history, God is speaking He's saying, let my people go. And he's working wonders among rulers such as Cyrus so that Cyrus would let the people go back to Israel. He's working wonders throughout the world causing missionaries to be allowed into countries, causing the gospel to go forth as Jehovah God commands the release of his people. I love my own, God says. I hate sin and the bondage of sin. And I will see to it that every last one of my children is brought out of bondage to sin into the expression and knowledge of the wonder of the love that is in Jesus Christ. God will accomplish the deliverance of his people. And he will do so so that they worship. Jesus is typified here in this history as we're going to see in more detail. So God comes to Pharaoh now through Moses and Aaron. God. This isn't just Pharaoh coming. is isn't just men coming to Pharaoh. God is coming to Pharaoh. And he does so through these elderly men who now look at themselves and they confess, I am nothing. They've learned through the experiences of life that they're nothing. But now God is pleased to make use of them. And God makes clear to them that he will accomplish deliverance. What takes place in this history now is then God hardening and saving. And again, this is the work of God throughout all of history. As the gospel goes forth and as God is at work throughout all of history, two things are taking place. There is the hardening of some, there's the salvation of others. And so we look at that great wonder, first of all, that's taking place here. As we look at the wonders and I will harden Pharaoh's heart. We read in verse 3. Now that word means to bind fast. It means to make firm. It has the idea that Pharaoh will be unreceptive to anything that God directs. He's going to be so dull that he's going to be hard of hearing. He won't listen. He won't hear God's word. And it will bring about then, ultimately, his destruction. He will be destroyed as a result. Now that God sovereignly hardens Pharaoh's heart does not mean that God is the author of sin. Pharaoh's the author of his own sin. Pharaoh is already wicked. And as a wicked one now, he's not made wicked by God, but now he's confirmed in that wickedness. And that wickedness intensifies even in the hardening of his heart and his rebellion. And so that hardening proceeds from the fact that he already has that evil nature. And now his wickedness is he refuses to acknowledge God. He will not worship God. He will not serve God. He will not forsake idolatry. Really, Pharaoh, as we noted, believes himself to be God. And he believes himself to be one who is authoritative and sovereign. And he will not then submit to God's will. And so God again and again says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. There's three distinct ways throughout this history that are spoken of with regard to Pharaoh's hardening. At least 20 different references. First we read of God hardening Pharaoh's heart. At least 11 times in the history we have God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Or God saying that I will harden Pharaoh's heart. On four occasions we read positively that Pharaoh hardened his heart. There's another five times that we read that Pharaoh's heart was hardened, but we don't have a specific mention as to whom, whether it was Pharaoh or whether it was God. But we see from this history, God impressing upon 
us not only, but also upon Pharaoh, his sovereign control of all things. God is the one directing all things. We also see here not only God's sovereignty, but also man's calling and responsibility. Pharaoh stands responsible for God to obey, and yet he hardens his heart. God sovereignly ordaining. Pharaoh on judgment day can't say, but I didn't have a chance. I couldn't let the people go because God kept hardening my heart. No, Pharaoh himself in his wickedness was increasing in sin and maintaining that sinfulness. We think of Romans 9. God prophesied the purpose for which he raised up Pharaoh. And Romans 9 talks about that in verses 17 and 18. For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. You recall that chapter is talking about the reality of the fact that not all believe. How do we understand that? Not all Israel believed. And the apostle sets forth by the inspiration of the Spirit the fact that God sovereignly as the potter is the one who ordains all things. And God is the one who ordains that there be some that are saved, others are hardened. Election and reprobation, Jacob and Esau. The potter takes a piece of clay and he makes out of one lump of clay a vessel for honor, another a vessel for dishonor. And who, O man, are we to object? This is God's sovereign work. And so talking about that here, the apostle says that God raised up Pharaoh for a purpose. And the purpose that God had for Pharaoh was not that Pharaoh would perform good works and good deeds and in that way would bring glory and honor to God, but that Pharaoh would display the glory of God through the hardening of his heart. And in that way, God would make known his greatness, his glory, his majesty. This is the outstanding example. And it makes us shudder of what happens to someone who refuses to obey. Now we realize that not only does this happen to the wicked, in the most extreme cases, this occurs to the reprobate wicked. God just constantly is hardening their hearts and they refuse to obey or to listen. But here's what God also did at times to Israel when there were those among Israel who were walking in sin, noting that there were reprobate also among Israel. So that as God did mighty wonders and God did judgments, there were some among Israel that refused to believe. And we read that their hearts then became hardened and they were given over to the pursuit then of sin and rebellion against God. This can even for a time happen to God's children who continue without repentance in sin. God gives them up for a time to their uncleanness. He gives them up to their sinfulness. And what happens for a time? They become so stubborn. They become so set in their ways that they will not repent. They will not turn from their sin. But in the most tragic of ways, God gave up Pharaoh to this idolatry. God comes to Pharaoh again and again saying to Pharaoh, I am Jehovah alone. You need to refuse. You need to turn away from your idols. And Pharaoh insists on himself. He rejects God. He has no desire to submit, no desire to acknowledge God. And God then leaves this one in his sin, not only, but God causes that sin to increase so that the cup of iniquity is filled through Pharaoh. And again, this is, this is frightening, beloved, to see in a man, in a woman, they become so sad in their sins that they will not listen to the word of God. They will not hear admonition. They become like a rock, unresponsive. That's Pharaoh. He will not listen. He will not submit. And when someone in that way pursues their own will, they refuse to turn from their sins, they're set on their own way, then we shudder sometimes to just see how hardened they become to God, to his word, and to the things of God's kingdom. And what's going on in that situation? There's judgment taking place. This is God's hand of judgment as God gives sinners over to their sin. God demonstrates that he won't be mocked. If you walk in sin, your sin is just going to increase and intensify. And pretty soon that sin will consume and destroy you and send you to hell. 
God's not showing merely his power. God's showing, I am the judge of heaven and earth. I am the one who dictates the eternal destiny of all men, angels, all moral, rational creatures. And the theme of these chapters is God's power and God's judgment. Now God then, in order to bring about that hardening, continues the plagues. So that we read then of the second plague. In chapter 8, we read it in verses 2 and following. I will smite all thy borders with frogs, and the river shall bring forth frogs abundantly. God causes the wonder, the miracle, that out of the river now, which they're worshiping, frogs are just coming abundantly. Now normally, you children maybe go down by the pond or by the water to catch a frog, and what happens? The frog jumps in the grass and it jumps into the river. Now we have the river producing the frogs, and the frogs are all jumping out of the river. They're all coming to land. Something unusual here is taking place. And we don't know how it all happened, but it wasn't just something uncomfortable. There's no doubt about that. And the Bible is explicit. They would open up their, so to speak, ovens, and there'd be frogs in them. They'd open their cooling places. If that's a refrigerator, there'd be frogs in it. In their bed, they'd get into bed. There'd be frogs in their bed. There'd be frogs everywhere. But here's the striking point. It's evident from Psalm 78 that these frogs were more than just a nuisance. God commands we see small things. God could have caused crocodiles and alligators to come out of the Nile River, and that would have really destroyed the people. But God commands not only the large, he commands the small things. Not crocodiles, but frogs. But these frogs were more than just a nuisance according to Psalm 78. Psalm 78 speaks of the fact that they brought about destruction. Verse 45, he sent diverse sorts of flies among them which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them. Now that's striking. Just how that happened. How did the frogs destroy the people? It's difficult for us to fathom. But that was the result here. It wasn't just an ordinary experience. It wasn't even just a nuisance with frogs everywhere. These frogs were bringing about in some way the destruction of the people. And we find the magicians again able to do it and they're making more frogs. Again, Pharaoh, you would think, would stop them. But instead, he turns to Moses and Aaron and he again repeats his anger and his fury with them. So then God says, after they're gone, and every time again, Pharaoh says, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll let them go, I'll let them go. So God takes away the plague and then what do we read? Pharaoh again is hardened. He won't let the people go. Verse 15, when he saw that there was rest, but he hardened his heart and hearkened not unto them as the Lord had said. And again, as the Lord had said means this is what God said was going to happen. Pharaoh will not tolerate it. He will not let it happen. And as a result, I'm going to bring another plague. And so we read in verse 16, and the Lord said to Moses, say unto Aaron, stretch out thy rod and smite the dust of the land that it may become lice through all the land of Egypt. And so now the dust, two Miracles, wonders God directed specifically against the water gods. Now God directs it against the God of the earth. They thought the earth provided them with nourishment. They worshipped the ground because it produced for them crops. Now what comes out of the ground? Lice. Here's a creative plague. God creates and he makes it so that now the dirt is producing these lice. Now, specifically what they were, lice, gnats, some kind of a biting bug. We're not able to know the specific, but these bugs were everywhere. And again, these bugs come out of the fertile soil so that that soil now is creating trouble. That soil that they were worshiping, that they adored, now is causing trouble. Instead of vegetables, instead of plants, God's judgments are coming out of the ground. And no one is spared, nothing is spared. All of Egypt is corrupted. These plagues took place throughout all of the land of Egypt as well as the land of Goshen. God makes it now so that the magicians cannot duplicate this one. They try, they can't. And God demonstrates that he's the creator. And as the creator, he's the only one who's able to cause such wonders ultimately to take place. And he's the one sovereignly directing and governing all these things. All they can say is, this is the finger 
of God. We read of that in verse 19. Now there the God, word God there that's translated in our passage is plural. So there is a wonder whether they actually are acknowledging Jehovah or if they're simply just saying it's outside of our control. There's some other gods that are at work. It would seem that the magicians are not acknowledging Jehovah as God. They're not admitting that this is of Jehovah. They're simply noting this is something we can't do. And this is something that's now of the gods. Pharaoh remains rebellious. He will not turn from his idol gods. And so what's the significance of this, these wonders? These are judgments again testifying Jehovah. He is God alone. The issue is not merely physical inconveniences that occurred during the time here of the Egyptians. God is directing all things so that they see your idols are nothing. I alone am worthy of worship and praise. And you need to look to me. And he demonstrates also his wrath to demonstrate that those idol gods are nothing. Where are your gods to stop the plagues? Where are your gods to feed you and to nurture you and to provide for you? Jehovah says, I'm coming after you. And I'm coming after you with all my wrath, Pharaoh. And I'm coming not only against you, I'm coming against all of Egypt. And I am going to bring about your destruction. Where are your gods to help you? Where are your gods to save you? And God's wrath is such that he destroys the future of Pharaoh. He destroys the future of Pharaoh's kingdom. He destroys the people of Egypt. By the time we are finished here, there is nothing left in Egypt. Egypt is decimated. Jehovah alone is God. Even among the people of God, there's a sense that the wrath of God is among them. We know that Israel didn't deserve to go out of Egypt. And in that regard, we also read of the fact in the history that this idolatry of the Egyptians was beginning to affect some of the Israelites. And herein, again, beloved, there's warning. Some of the Israelites were beginning to say, well, these are our gods too. We're going to worship them. And they were giving in to the paganism and to the idolatry. Ezekiel 20, verses 7 and 8, talk about this. Then said I unto them, Cast ye every man away the abomination of his eyes. Defile not yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and would not hearken unto me. They did not every man cast away the abomination of their eyes. Neither did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I said, I will pour out my fury among them to accomplish my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. Not only were these wonders to demonstrate to Egypt, I am God, but tragically also among the Israelites, there were those who were tempted and were giving in to idolatry. But God had sworn an oath that he would deliver his son. He would bring his son out of Egypt. Now when God talks about Israel, we know that he's talking about Israel in two different ways. Sometimes Israel according to the flesh, which will bring about their destruction ultimately. They're those who are reprobate. And other times Israel according to the spirit, that is those who were his children, whom he had set his love upon. God's promise and God's deliverance is to Israel according to the Spirit. Israel, who was giving over to the flesh, would face also the judgments and the destruction of God's anger. When Moses went down to the river to meet Pharaoh, it's sad but likely that perhaps there were Israelites down there too. Israelites that were inclined to get up in the morning, go down by the river, and caught up in that need to bring their worship to the river while in Egypt inclined to give in to that idolatry God will pour out his fury upon them also in the land of Egypt and God will have the upper hand because he alone is God again and again God's emphasis through this history is I will make my name known they will know who I am and there will be no excuse and beloved, that's the victory that is accomplished here. God is teaching us that in our lives, the most important thing is his glory. We are to put away 
all idols. We're to lay aside all that in which we would put our trust. And we're to acknowledge Jehovah, he alone is God. By defeating all of the idol gods, God is demonstrating the purpose of all of history. Not just this history, but all of history. All of history is about Jehovah declaring, I alone am God. And I alone am worthy of all worship and praise. And God will deliver his people. He will do so by bringing them out of the bondage that they are in to sin and bringing them into the joy and the wonder of that freedom that's in Jesus Christ. God overcomes the Nile River because God is the source of life, not the Nile. God is the one who's able to help them. God overcomes the frog gods because God is the God of fertility. It was thought that among some that the frog was the symbol of fertility. God is demonstrating, no, I am that God that provides fertility. God overcomes the gods of the land. I alone am able to cause the land to produce its fruit. The devil deceives men. God demonstrates his power and his influence over all. And God uses now Moses and Aaron to point the people to the foolishness of that idolatry. But again, we look at the bigger picture here. Jesus Christ is the one to whom Moses was pointing. And Moses was merely a sinner. Moses was one who directs us to the one alone who was able to grant that freedom. As Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh, they realized they couldn't let the people go. They couldn't deliver the people out of the hands of Pharaoh. God alone could accomplish that wonder. And God would do it in a marvelous way. God would call his son out of Egypt in order that his son, Jesus Christ, in the fullness of time, might shed his blood for the sake of the deliverance of his church. And every last one of his children would be freed then from the bondage of sin and death and brought into the liberty and the joy of that life with God. The sins of his people put on Jesus Christ and Jesus bearing those sins and taking upon himself the full punishment for them. The bleeding son of God going to hell in order that he would deliver from bondage those whom the Father had given him. And now Jesus, where is he? He's at the right hand of God. He's directing all things. And he's pouring out his spirit in the hearts of his children to preserve and to keep them in the liberty wherewith he has made them free. He works that rebirth in our hearts. And he calls us to look to him and to walk in a manner that reflects that wonder of justification and sanctification that he has performed within us. But who are we? What are we like? So weak we are that we're constantly going back to Egypt. We're constantly tempted to go back to those sins, go back to those pleasures. Jesus continues his work by his spirit within us. And Jesus declares over against the powers of sin, let my people go. Free them from those temptations. Release them from those sins that beset them. Jesus continues his wonder work as the rod of God who throws himself on earth in order that he might destroy all the powers of sin and death. And he's lifted up. And he's lifted up as the one who crushes the head of those who are hardened and the one who alone is able to give to us the deliverance that we stand in need of. His blood was shed. Not yours, not mine, not the Nile River. Jesus' blood is shed. And he makes us to be his own. And the result of his wonder work is that he works within us then to fight. There's a battle. And that battle is over against idolatry, over against the gods of the world, over against the temptations of the flesh, against our own stubborn natures that are inclined like little children, to go right up to the line and then to step over and to see if we can do it without getting caught. We think we're free, but really, what's happening? We step into bondage again. And we step back into the bondage of the selfishness and the control of sin and the devil. Jehovah God alone, who's able to free his people and keep them in the joy of that freedom. 
And so, beloved, beloved, living out of grace, living out of the truth, we're warned. Don't make a God out of your own humility. Don't make a God out of your own ability. Don't make a God out of your own piety. We find so many strange ways, don't we, to puff ourselves up in pride, to make ourselves look better than someone else. I'm a sinner. The only possibility of my salvation is grace. That Jehovah God freed me. That he declared his powerful word, let my people go. And that through Jesus Christ and the power of his shed blood, I have been justified. I have been delivered. From all the sin, all the bondage, all the corruption of my nature, and I am now a child of my heavenly Father. And how great is my God? My God is so great that he is able to keep me. He's able to preserve me. And he's able to bring me into the wonder of that glory that awaits. He gives us the grace to let go of this world. To let go of the things of Egypt. To forsake the ways of sin. And to follow his own beloved son. Beloved, that's the wonder. The wonder of all wonders. Idolatry draws us in. We're taken by the idols of money, fame, honor, glory. Powerless we are to stand against the powers of sin. We need the power of God's grace. And we need the wonder of God's faithfulness and the blessed assurance, I am your God and I will keep you and I will preserve you. And we look to him for that strength. And we look to him for that grace in this coming week. In this coming week, live out of the freedom of that glorious grace. Prosper in your marriages. Take up your labors, your work, with a love for the work that God has given you and for the opportunities that God enables you to take up. Be content in the circumstances, the situations of life in which God has placed you. You're not in control. Jehovah God is. He's the one who puts you in that single life or that married life with children, without children. He's the one that puts you in the circumstances of your life. And you walk before him. And we do so with thankfulness for his goodness, for his mercy, for the strength by which he preserves and keeps us in the midst of this spiritual battle. And we give all glory to him, the God who alone is God, all-powerful over all of the idols, the God who draws us irresistibly by his power and who will keep and preserve us until he brings us to the full glory of heaven. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, we thank thee for thy work of grace in our lives. We are weak and sinful. We are inclined to the things of idolatry. Forgive us, Lord. And may we know thy power, thy majesty, thy greatness. May we know thy promises. And may we by faith cling to them and be assured that thou art with us, whithersoever we go. Amen.